It's a Games Club JRPG podcast, and I'm uh, Paul M. Davis, uh, your regular host, and uh, who am I here with? Hey, hey, I'm Robert. I'm back again. Yeah, welcome back. I think the last game we did together was uh, Ease. Yeah, Ease we're for, here for something very different. <laughs> yes. About, you know, roughly, I don't know, 30 years separation. Yeah, which is where most of the differences come from, I guess. They yeah. invented complicated JRPG stories back then. <sighs> they didn't. They didn't. Though I have to say that the first uh, Shin Megami Tensei has a uh, remarkably complicated story. For uh, that's true, SMT is just kind of head, head and shoulders above a lot of things, though. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, like, I, I feel like this game, uh, which we haven't even announced yet, uh, but uh, this game we are going to be doing uh, Fantasy Fantasy Star, uh, which was released for the Sega Master System. Um, in 1987 in Japan and 1989 in the U.S. But uh, getting back to what I was saying, I feel like um, this game definitely has like more story to it than even like some you know than a number of their predecessors. Even though the story of this game is pretty is pretty thin. Yeah, and you even said it there. Uh, like Dragon Warrior uh, came out after this in the U.S. That's not like generally true, mm-hmm. but. I feel like if you're, in the, if you're in the U.S. and you had this game and you saw kids playing Dragon Warrior, you had to be like, look at this crap. <laughs> yeah. This is way more advanced. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I think I told you this offline, but um, so this was the, the first uh, RPG I ever played. Um, and I guess I must have been 12 when it came out. And... I picked it up, and of course, you know, it was it was like sixty or seventy bucks because it had a battery in it, so it was definitely like a Christmas present. Um, but you know, Sega Master System was not very well, you know, didn't get a lot of attention, and was like getting thrashed by uh, Nintendo. And uh, you know, the video game magazines at the time were just like giving these giving Fantasy Star like ten out of ten, and saying you know it was like going to breeze new life in the system and it's, you know, the best game of its genre to come to the U S and whatnot. And so, you know, I, you know, with my very limited number of games that w- were available on the master system, or at least good ones, you know, I definitely asked for this one uh, for Christmas and uh, yeah, I took to it originally and I, you know, like immediately. And I think that's, you know, why this franchise appeals to me a lot more than some other uh, RPG franchises is because it put the uh, science fiction elements like so like to, to the forefront. But I also I remember I never play I'd never seen a game like it before. Um, I guess I was going through the dates. Um, Final Fantasy had come to the U.S. in 1987, uh, and uh, yeah, Fantasy Star came in '88. But yeah, Dragon Warrior didn't come until 89. I didn't know anybody who had Final Fantasy. And so, you know, and I didn't even know anybody any, who had, you know, was playing like the big, like, 
or computer RPGs. Um, and yeah, one thing, one memory I have at the time is uh, trying to show it to my friend how, you know, how excited and how I was about it and how cool I thought. And he's like, uh, I think this is a game for girls. <laughs> Which... <laughs> but that title screen, you know, it's got, it's got a girl on it. And back yeah, in the eighties, totally. I was like, what is this? You don't, you don't use the color pink or anything. And he's like, you just like walk around there, like choosing menus. And I was like, yeah, yeah. He's like, <laughs> uh, that you is know, really and good. That, and that way, for me, like, I didn't like, actually... uh, a 12 or 13 year old can be, I was like, uh, like simultaneously, simultaneously like hurt by it, but also like feeling like, Ooh, I might be a little cooler. Cause I'm on like, you know, like a game for older people or something like that. Oh, that's it. That's, that's, yeah, that's how you yeah. got to put it. I kind of had those two, like, I mean, those two, uh, sides kind of like fighting my mind. Um, but yeah. Right. I mean, it kind of is for older people insofar as, I don't know, you need to be able to read to play yeah. this game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, the the mechanics and the tropes of this game uh, are hit on are not particularly you know complicated it's definitely no more complicated than like no i guess not game. but putting it in sure, this, like historical then, like, context the- it was you know like in my case and a lot of people's cases possibly the first rpg they ever come across yeah and i like the concept of this is actually a bit more complicated than those other games, you know, Final Fantasy, Dragon Warrior. It's like kind of cool stuff. It's not complicated, but it really appeals. And that's kind of the thing for me. I didn't play this until like there was an Xbox 360 Genesis collection that also included this. And because I'm an absolute fool, I keep buying uh, Genesis (laughs) game collections and that was my first time playing this. I played Fancy Star online for like 200 hours before I actually touched one of the real Fancy Stars. But the thing is, this really impressed yeah. me even then. It's it's kind of impressive. I mean, What's that? That, I'm putting it in its context a little a bit. I'm putting it in its context a little bit, but still, it's like, this is really well animated. It looks good. It actually moves pretty fast. Now that said, you should play the Switch version now if you you've got that available. Because that's it's amazing. Faster. Because it's got... I don't have it in front of me, uh, but it's got top-down maps uh, for all the dungeons, which, you know, even though the map, the dungeons in this game look pretty cool, uh, you will not be unhappy to have the option of the top-down map to refer to. Um, it's got information on all the different spells, all the uh, different equipment, and, you know, they, it's basically just the same game with uh, a number of like quality of life improvements added in there that yeah they turned down the frequency of random encounters but mm-hmm. turned up the rewards there's a little like bestiary in there which isn't too useful but i like reading it because you can kind of see the places where whoever wrote it had looked at this data and was like why can you talk to a giant spider this doesn't make any sense and then you know had to write uh unexpectedly this creature is capable of speech. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, I mean, one of the things that's interesting, uh, that's kind of funny, is um, at least for uh, Fantasy Star 1 through 4, even though they all kind of, like, all comprise, like, a single uh, narrative, though 3 is kind of, like, 3 was developed by a different team, so it's kind of cast out a lot of times. They're, they basically 
tell a pretty closely related uh, narrative and uh, share a lot of canon. Uh, but they are also a uh, victim to uh, localization of the time, which means that in each game, you're basically going to the same three planets, but the planet's names have changed. Some of the names of, like, you know, when it calls back to previous game's characters, sometimes their names are different. And, you know, you have to, like, actually be like, look, oh, that, that, that statue kind of oh, yeah, looks like uh, this one stuff. character from previous game. Okay, I got it. Yeah, that's a little bit of a pain when you get just back in the day with that stuff. I'd said the localization is pretty good. And even in this game, like, oh yeah, for sure. I mean, there's there's definitely places where you can see they didn't have very many characters. So you have yeah. the enemy robot cop, all one word. I have no idea, like, if this is a localization thing, but the healing <laughs> items are burger and cola, which is kind of funny. But also, like, there's these guys who are living in bombed out buildings and wearing rags, and they're like, hey, buddy, can you spare a cup of cola? Which is that is really the funniest funny. thing in the world to me. Um, yeah. Yeah, there are there are another a number of those things, um, and then also the four letter spellings of some of the spells. I can't think of one that comes to mind, but they they are sometimes very amusing, um, just because they have to be abbreviated to uh, some term that doesn't really make sense but sounds funny. Oh yeah, maybe I I do have it in front of me, so maybe I can look up some things here. Yeah. But anyway, we'll get to it. So yeah, you know, I'll start off uh, just talking about a bit about the development of the games. Um, yeah, so with uh, the rise of Western RPGs like Ultima and Wizardry, um, those two games were huge in Japan and uh, really drove the creation of uh, the very first Dragon Quest game by Enix, um, which uh, they're actually before before uh, Fantasy Star was released in the U.S. There was actually two Dragon Quest games that had already been released in Japan. Um, but yeah, watching the success of just the first one and with the second one coming out, coming out during development, and it being just this huge like phenomenon in Japan almost instantly, Sega was like looking at their kind of uh, beleaguered master system. And they uh, went to the development team and, you know, were like, we need, you, we need you to make one of these right now, stat. Um, and so, yeah, it came out in 1987 in Japan. And uh, the uh, development team was uh, led by uh, designer uh, Kotaro Hayashida, uh, programmer Yuji Naka, who, uh, you know, is best known for his role as the uh, producer and godfather and designer of uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, and uh, the artist Reiko Kodama. And uh, Reiko Kodama played a really primary role in the uh, development of Fantasy Star 1, 2, and 4. And Kodama really has, has had a fascinating career, most of it at Sega. But um, yeah, she, since her, t uh, her 20s, she's been one of the few women, or when she started out in her 20s, uh, she was one of the few women uh, to be working in Japanese game development. Um, and also to have, you know, get the uh, role of uh, producer, you know, of, at what at the time was one of the company's biggest franchises for like the 80s and 90s. Uh, Kodama was really integral in deciding that they make Alice the main character, uh, a woman. And uh, later in the 90s, they had her design art for Skies of Arcadia. Uh, then there was whole, the whole like 
kind of like a bad period of Sega, which ran from like, you know, 2001 till, you know, I don't know when you want to say like Sega's gotten slightly better. <laughs> um, what's that? Yeah, I mean, they yeah. have. I'm just not yeah, sure. They, they got better. I have. I'm just not sure when like that started. 10 years, but it's hard to say at like what point, you know, and it always feels kind of tenuous. But uh, it was really sad because for a long time during that they, that era, they just like had her like working on just kind of crappy sh- uh, shovelware, and uh, she finally kind of had something of a uh, comeback uh, with the uh, Seventh Dragon series, which we've only gotten the third entry of in the U.S. Um, she also she was a producer on those games and uh, and a designer, and it's really interesting because if you look at the Seventh Dragon games. The style is, like, super deformed, uh, super cutesy. It's very, very different from the kind of, like, high fantasy, hard, high, you know, hard sci-fi look that, uh, you know, crossed with an anime look that uh, Fantasy Star had. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of a leap. But the only one of those games that I've played is number three that came to the U.S. And you, you can definitely see some similarities especially in the way that it kind of like merges like um fantasy and science fiction um but yeah you know this that was something that uh the developers and sega you know that was a setting that they chose to really distinguish fantasy star from the other rpgs of the time um you know even though the game has like uh definitely has fantasy elements and uh like fantasy mythological figures like Medusa and whatnot. Um, it also has spaceships and uh, robot cops. And uh, not surprising, given the, uh, given the time it was developed, but also, uh, you know, by uh, you know, some of the designs that they, uh, they lifted, they took a lot of inspiration from Star Wars, um, which you can see pretty much at the outside, outside of the game, with the robot cops who oh, are yeah, exactly sure. like uh, Imperial uh, Star Troopers. Yes, and then you go to a desert yeah. planet, you know, pretty yeah, um, pretty much what you would expect. But it is kind of like a mishmash. There's like guns and then there's just swords. Like you start off like almost like a regular mm-hmm. progression that you would get in a fantasy RPG. Like here's a copper sword, yeah, yeah, a steel which is, sword. You know, more or less like but then eventually it's a laser you know, sword. And, or a lightsaber. And, um, yeah, but by the best, by the end of the game, like some of the best weapons are guns, like the laser gun. Yeah. Well, the guns are, are an interesting one because they do a flat amount of damage, but they hit every enemy. So like you won't always use them, but it is, uh, like useful for a certain range Like you'll have one gun for a while and another gun for a while. Right. right. Probably towards the end, you'll switch back to yeah, the yeah. axe for it's, that I mean, character. It's interesting to have that kind of like, uh like demarcation between the two. Um, but yeah, the, the other thing that they're really focused on, um, which uh, is a huge contrast, I think, to, you know, if you compare this to say like the first Dragon Quest game, is they uh, really, really focused on the visuals. Like first Dragon Quest game um, is not much to look at. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there's are cute character designs, but they don't animate or anything in battle. You know, PC games, uh, the Western RPGs and the PC games that were from the popular at the time. And uh, even though the Master System wasn't, like, incredibly more powerful than the NES, I think that I know that it had a larger color palette. And 
I think it was uh, had a slightly faster pro processor, so they were able to push the graphics a little further than uh, developers on the NES or Famicom could do. Um, so yeah, they really wanted to push the visual elements, and probably the most notable thing place that you'll see it is uh, in the uh, dungeons, which take place in uh, basically first person, uh, the first person 3D dungeons. And at the time it was released, this was a mind-blowing visual effect. Now, you know, with these eyes, you can kind of look at it, and it's like, oh, well, you know, there's probably, you know, only like 10 or 12 backgrounds being rendered here, you know, because every dungeon. Yeah, and you can see, like, oh, in the animation where I'm turning right, that wall just, there's a wall that appears yeah, there totally. where there was a passage for a second. Yeah, I mean, there's only very, one animation. it's very primitive by our standards today. But if you put it in, in the context of its time, it's uh, it's pretty impressive. And I think one of the things they did was that was really smart is that they just went for like a very like one single toned dungeon design. Uh, so they, you know, even though yeah. there's like a, lots of different sort of like areas, there's like the desert area, the tree area, and the ice planet. Um, all the dungeons pretty much look the same, and it gives them like sort of cohesive, a, cer a certain cohesiveness, but it also lets them like make them. It also it also let the developers make them like look as good as they possibly could within the memory memory constraints that they had. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and so the design and animation was, for those was uh, largely done by uh, Yuji Naka, which. Uh, you know, isn't that much of a surprise. Uh, he really kind of gained a name uh, at Sega as being like kind of one of their, uh, you know, one of their best uh, designers and develop developers even before Sonic came along. And then one of the other uh, kind of like really standout uh, aspects of the, uh, of the game are uh, the battle screens, which um, display backgrounds that are relevant to whatever kind of climate you're in. So, you know, if you're on the desert planet, there's a de there's a desert backdrop. If you're going through trees, there's a tree backdrop, and uh, the enemies are animated. That's very rudimentary, but there is some animation. Um, yeah, I think that's probably my favorite visual aspect of the game. Is like there are some really yeah. good, fun enemy animations. Even though you do end up, some of them are probably a bit too long because if you have five enemies, you have to watch this mm -hmm. one second animation five times every turn. But yeah, they're still impressive, yeah. at least for a little while. And they're very, very, I mean, you know, this is one of those cases where even, you know, even though the graphics were primitive, and I'm sure they hold nothing to uh, Reiko Kodama's original sketches, um, similar to, like, the early ST SMT games, like, you can definitely, and, and even the early uh, Dragon Quest games, you can definitely feel like there's, like, a strong artistic hand in in the design of the enemies and the characters and, and everything, you know, even if they're just like eight bit sprites, it's like there's a very kind of consistent visual language here, which is which is pretty uh pretty cool. Yeah. All right. So getting on to like the mechanics and the actual the actual playing the game, uh, it's pretty much what you would expect, you know, for an RPG from that time. You end up with a four person party, which again. Compare this to Dragon Warrior, where you had one, and you well, you also get to fight more than one enemy at a time. Only one type, but you'll fight several enemies, which is again 
this came out before Dragon Warrior in the West. But anyway, each of your characters is like has an archetype. You've got a well-rounded, you've got a strength but no magic guy. Well, we'll get to those in a second. And outside the dungeons, we already mentioned inside the really nice 3D view, but outside you just got a regular top-down view, random encounters. Uh, one thing that's different though is you get uh, vehicles in this game that are somehow inventory items, but when you use them, then you just get to go around <laughs> and you have like a Land Rover that lets you get over hazardous terrain. You have like a hovercraft that lets you sail. So, you know, some other games around this time were doing stuff like that, but I think it's pretty cool that you, first of all, that they're all very sci-fi-ish and that you just get them as items that you use at any time. You get like, you can move over land. Yeah, and it's cool also that they're very like terrain-centric. Like... I think a lot of the, you know Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest had the airships, but uh, these were very specifically like, okay, you're uh, you know you're on you know in a mountainous re- region, so you want to use land rover, yeah. or um, I can't remember the name of it, but there's like there's a uh, a machine to get through the ice as well, isn't there? Yeah, I was just going to mention that too. If you didn't, it's like the icebreaker where you just smash your way through some yeah. mountains with it which is cool, even though there's like no way to visually tell which ones you can go through. So that, that's one of the more like, eh, I'm, I'm glad GameFAQs exists now parts. Yeah. Even though this is... Yeah, and there's also... Uh, yeah, there's also... You also get a uh, spaceship, which is kind of necessary because you're going around from one planet to the next. Yeah. And uh, sorry to cut cut here, but I'm just laughing. When, I just laughed when you said GameFAQs because um, I remember... Uh, calling the uh, Sega tips line. Oh, um, yeah. The old scans. When I had the game. And I guess so many people had called about Fantasy Star that the person I got on the phone was just like, okay, let me just take your address. And about two weeks later in the mail, I got like a photocopy. What well, was basically like, a you know, a games fax in 1989. Oh. It was just like this large, like, photocopy booklet with like maps oh, of rules. all the different dungeons and like walkthroughs and all this kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, so that must have, and this was before like Sega or Nintendo were charging you to uh, call for tips. So I guess their uh, phone people were just like, all right, we're, uh, we're uh, spending all of our time explaining like dungeon, <laughs> dungeon designs to kids. Like, oh yeah. You know, somebody that, make, a, make a document about this. That is really cool though. That's a cool thing to have. Yeah. I wish I still had it. Yeah. It's um, a shame. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, so party members, like I said, you got four of them. Alice is your main character. It's not spelled like normal human Alice. It's sci-fi. So it's A-L-I-S. Yes, she's like a kind of what you'd expect for your main character. She's well round. She's got pretty good physical attacks. She's got a bunch of different magic spells. Uh, and she's kind of the only character in the game with like a really well defined, well, okay, not well defined, but she has a motivation and personality that you can kind of get because at the beginning of the game, you see her brother killed by some of the robot cops. And then she vows revenge on the evil king guy, Lassic. So second party member is Meow. Again, not spelled the way you think. It's M-Y-A-U, and it's a cat. Uh, so he, yeah, he's a cat who can talk. I should mention that. The game doesn't see this as weird, so I guess cats can just talk in this universe. And sort of a support spells kind of character, I guess I would say. Doesn't, like, you don't get a lot of equipment. Uh, being a cat can't equip regular weapons, but everything you get for him is some special drop. But he actually has... 
one thing I like about this game is the help spell, which is just a, an all-purpose buff, is actually good. I'm always always down for any JRPG where the buff spells are good. Yeah, yeah, because there's so many so many that games where you can just kind of like power power your way through buffs and debuffs. Yeah, so the third character is Odin, and he's a friend of Alice's brother. One of the first things in the game is he's as he's dying, says, ah, oh, Alice, go see Odin. But he really is just a guy with a big neck who hits stuff very hard. He can't use magic. He can use the guns, so that's his one thing. But he doesn't have any story or anything at all. But still, you're going to be happy to have him because he hits stuff really hard. Yeah. And the last person you get is Noah. Uh, you have written here one of the last espers, and I don't remember if that's actually a thing that the game says. I just remember he's a dude in a cave who joins you. Yeah, I don't know. Looking back now, I, I'm thinking that I think they mention it once in this game, but that comes up more in uh, in uh, the following games. I think oh. they do mention it once in this game, but it's they're kind of like you know this uh, this uh, order of monks um, who have been carrying on like knowledge for and uh, kind of their magical their magical knowledge and abilities for you know millennia Ooh, yeah okay i want them to get the rest of these games on the switch so i can play them in a nice way anyway he gets told to join you by the governor of oh what's the desert planet called again um desert yes yeah he just gets told to join you so he does he's got really good attack magic and he gets he actually gets a little bit of characterization because you meet his master at one point and they have a magic duel to get a good piece of equipment for him, <laughs> which I'm always down for, even though if you don't expect it, it's a real pain. Yeah. Because <laughs> the thing about this game is stuff is just sort of in dungeons and arbitrary places. So you have no way of knowing that's going to happen until you stumble into it. Yeah. You have to use them as own. Yeah. That's definitely what, that's definitely an element that shows, shows its, uh, shows its age. It's, it's definitely got that thing. Like I was playing, I've been playing a lot of dry, dragon quest 11, uh, Last few oh days. yeah, I'm meaning to get to that eventually. Oh, so good, so good. Um, and uh, you know, going back and like playing Fantasy Star again, um, I was looking at Dragon Quest Eleven and being like, "Wow, is this a little too user friendly?" Because like, you never wonder where you're supposed to go. You always like have a good idea of where on the map you need to go, and it's not as simple as like follow the red dot on the world map to get there. It's not quite that simple, but you know. They'll always have like go west through this and then go north and then west from there. Um, but at the same time, looking back on Fantasy Star, where you know in games of its vintage, where you just sort of like you just walk around the world map until you like <laughs> stumble into yeah, uh, you know a uh, item or you know a piece of equipment that you need to uh, continue, yeah. um, or a dungeon that maybe is too hard for you. Yeah, yeah this is a like pretty open-ended game and that's cool there's upsides and downsides like i i kind of want both to exist yeah i mean i think that's one of those things that's one of those things that's always difficult like in rpg design like i and i don't think that they've even figured that out today where you know even though rp you know rpgs and especially like jrpgs like dragon quest 11 or uh, xenoblade chronicles 2 they want to create this, they want to definitely create the sense of an open world, but it's really hard to get around like using the strength of certain enemies as being like sort of a gate. 
I don't think that they've, you know, like as a way of telling you, the player, you can't go any further than this right now in the game. And, you know, 30 years on, I don't know if there's been an easy, you know, like a much better uh, approach. Been, I don't know if they found a much better approach 30 years on. Yeah. Well, you even got like, People argue about that with the Fallout series to this day. So it's not a settled question, I don't yeah. think. But yeah, getting back to uh, Fantasy Star, you know, just the basic premise. Um, you start out in uh, the three-planet Algo Star, Algo Star System, which is under the democratic rule of King Lassic, which, uh, you know, he was a pretty, pretty good ruler. He gave uh, everybody, you know, all, everything he gave, everything he could to uh, all, all his people, you know, he's a fair, kind leader. But over time, uh, things started to change. And uh, that was, uh, you know, because of a new religion, which was rumored to have come from another galaxy. And um, basically, the dark priests of this religion, which had never been seen by any mortal, promised immortality to anyone who joined. Um, since uh, King Lassic was getting old, basically the idea of living forever appealed to him. So he was the first to jo- join. Um, because of this, he started to uh, change and um, started wearing this very like threatening, evil-looking set of armor. That uh... I love that being the <laughs> <Yeah>. first thing <laughs> that the dark priests made for him. Everyone sees that armor, it's like, no, yeah. this is bad. This is <laughs> yeah, bad. Lock him up in some some uh, some uh, scary armor. Um, the emperor's new scary clothes. <laughs> Meanwhile, not not content with uh, you know joining some dark religion, uh, he decided to uh, make the economy crater and uh, you know starts charging uh, you know outrageous taxes and uh, business on all the three planets. Is pretty pretty much goes to shit. Um, entire towns fall into decay. So this is, you know definitely re- relatable to modern day uh, this setting. Um, and then as time passes, yeah, like so, I this is begging for like a politics, right? Joke, and I just don't have I it know, in me right now. As far as I can go <laughs> with that, um, but you know, as 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 this happen as happens in many video games, uh, time passes, the worlds kind of go to hell, and people are suffering, and then monsters begin appearing. Uh, then the dead come back to life. And uh, the people just start fearing the wet, the worst. And so, yeah, basically through this black, black magic, uh, Lassic has become an evil tyrant. Um, you got brave people who uh, start to rally in secret against Lassic, but his uh, robotic cops are pretty much ruthless in hunting down the defenders of the people. And one of those people was uh, Nero, who uh, worked at a, a spaceport on uh, Kamenitz, which was the uh, central town on the planet Palma, and uh, he was driven to uh, plot against Lassic because his father had uh, disappeared many years before trying to learn uh, all of Lassic's secrets. And so the game basically starts out in the year AW342, with uh, Nero being caught and killed by the robotic cops. Uh, And it seemed that's, you know, kind of gnarly for uh, 1988. yeah, yeah. That's so cool about he's just it. kind of like it's lying like, there dying a little bit better than bleeding out and uh yeah. yeah they just beat him up and leave him there too in the middle of the street it's it is. it's pretty brutal you know yeah he's just dying there bleeding out and he uh passes uh, his short sto- sword over to his uh, sister alice 
and uh, asks her to basically take up his quest. And uh, he suggests to her that she uh, seek out legendary warrior, legendary warrior Odin for help. You know? and so out of grief and hatred for Lassic, uh, Alice sets out in the world and vows to avenge him. Yeah, I should note, I think all of the above must be from the manual because the game doesn't say any of that. And it's not necessary context, but it's yeah, kind of it's nice kind of to like have. Just general premise that I think was described. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, Lassic is evil. Uh, it's kind of implied that he has some like secret plan or he's up to something, but that doesn't come yeah. to anything. You just walk yeah, up and a lot of that backstory you, know, kill him. you kind of figure out as the game goes along, but also some of it also, you know, some of it is also like just in like the manuals of the game and some of it actually kind of like it's clarified in some of the later games. So yeah, that makes sense. They had to go back and kind of fill in some of those details for finding yeah. new sequel hooks. All right, which one of us was um, going first with the story? I don't remember. Yellow. So that's that's kind of it. You're just sort of dumped into the world. You can't even get to, like, the spaceport because you don't have a pass. And you can go actually find Odin, who is in uh, the cave of Medusa, which Medusa is not inside. Uh, but he has been turned by turned into stone, so she was there, I guess. But instead you get to find a cat meow. Well, uh mm. Okay, let me start the game. So instead, you go and get your pass, and you find Meow on the desert planet, who has, like, some sort of anti-petrification goop. And you really, you really quickly get two party members, mm-hmm. and you've got a whole gang together. Uh, then there's a quest that isn't important, but I have to mention, where you, get, you buy cake from a bakery that's at the bottom of a dungeon, which is good... Because the game understands how absurd that is. Like when you go in, the guy running is just like, yeah, sorry. So it's it's legitimately deliberately funny, which is very weird. But I'm into it. Yeah, yeah so you get the dungeon, dungeon cake, cake and you actually use that to get an audience with the governor of Motavia. That's the desert planet name. You said something else for? Nah, whatever. It's called Motavia, apparently. Oh, yeah, I think we were mixing up the desert and the uh, ice planet. Yeah, and he's the one who gives you a letter yeah, of introduction so. to Noah, who then joins you. And then, yes, yeah, you just get all four party members pretty fast. And eventually you get a spaceship called the Luveno, and you can now travel freely between Pama, Motavia, and Dexorus, the ice planet. And you're just completing quests and figuring out how, first of all, to get to Lassic, and, you know, secondly, what happened with him, finding things he's messed up, towns he's destroyed, yeah, you collect a lot of just MacGuffins. You get a prism and a crystal and an eclipse torch and like the laconic gear, which is some special space metal that is the strongest stuff. You probably don't technically need it, but you know, the game says, oh, you're definitely going to need that to fight Lassic. Yeah. And once you get all that stuff together, you do a whole bunch of stuff with all of those items to get to Lassic's sky castle. Uh, you have fly there in the back of Meow. You can, he turns into like a winged thing. Mm-hmm. That's fun. Yeah, like a giant. Yeah, there's like, also a weird thing where like you can actually get stuck up there because if Meow dies, you can't use it, and you have the teleport back spell. But if you run out of MP, it's a whole thing. So it is possible to fight Lassic the boss and then be stuck. Yeah, <laughs> that's never happened to me or anything, but I imagine this has happened to at least one person, and it must have sucked. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I don't think that happened to me. Um, that definitely definitely didn't happen to me in a replay, but didn't happen to me luckily in the first, my first time through. Yeah, well, anyway, luckily you've 
got all your fun equipment now and you just fight Lassic. He's not super difficult or anything. He just hits you and you hit him back until he falls down. And uh, then you are successful. You have saved the Algol system and everything is perfectly done. The end. Except, surprise, surprise, Lassic isn't the final boss. And uh, before your team can uh, celebrate, they hear this uh, ethereal voice that says, Quickly, go see the governor in, in Motavia. And so uh, once they enter the governor's palace, they are uh, transported to this eerie dungeon with uh, really high-level enemies. Um, and this dungeon is... Like, the dungeon, the Sky Castle dungeon is tough. Like, it'll definitely throw a lot of different enemies. Yeah, there's a lot. And there's, like, a mini-boss uh, and then Lassic at the end. So it's a bit of an endurance test. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely an endurance test. And, like, keeping your stats up enough to go against Lassic or the uh, final boss while, you know, taking on these uh, lower level, level, lower level enemies uh, can be pretty challenging, you know, but um, so yeah, once you make your way through the maze, uh, they uh, come face to uh, face with uh, dark falls, which uh, was renamed uh, dark force in later games. Um, so there's never been, really been like a good, like canonical, like description for like, or a, uh, listing of what his name is yeah i know in online they went back to falls yeah yeah in this game it's dark falls i think in fantasy star 2 it's force and i think in 4 they may have gone back to falls because fall uh 4 has a lot of callbacks to this game and so yeah you get in there um dark falls he kind of looks like uh this giant blue bodybuilder with a body like designed by uh hr Giger. (laughs) oh wow yeah (laughs) uh yeah there's definitely it's definitely got some of that uh you know 80s post alien like kind of like sort of technological sort of organic yeah it's a really uh, cool vibe to it like it comes out of nowhere and is inexplicable but it's a cool final boss yeah yeah and so dark falls not surprisingly is the hardest boss in the game but um he's just a really really tough in general uh a tough guy a battle in general um it's really important that you have the crystal uh, that uh, Noah's been carrying. It kind of turns the tide in your favor. But um, even though you da- you actually don't get a readout on the enemy's HP, um, and a couple sources that are right online, they asked, they said it averages around 400 HP. Yeah, and by far the most. So this, yeah, and this battle can go on for a while. Yeah, and he gets two turns, I think, um, to each of your one. Yeah, he does. He does. Uh, it goes on for a while, so it's definitely an endurance test. And, um, you know, he is he seems more uh, susceptible to uh, magic than physical, but you'll also be wanting to use some of your spells to heal your team because he can pack a heavy punch. Um, so you've really got to kind of, like, manage your offensive uh, MP attacks with, you know, more of your defensive MP MP. Uh, uh, spells and uh, that can be pretty uh, pretty tough and so you know once Dark Falls is basically defeated um, you know Alice kind of gets like a superpower you know and is able to drive her sword deep into the enemy and uh, the dungeon uh, disappears and you find yourself back at the governor's mansion and the governor is pretty much returned to normal and uh, he, he explains that he was possessed by a dark force and then he explains to Alice that her uh, father was once the king of Algo, and uh, he asks if uh, she will ascend to the throne and rule Algo. 
And I'm sure um, canonically she says yes, but you can just say no, which I like. It doesn't true. change anything in particular, but you know, doesn't butt thou must you. It's just he says, oh well, too bad. They also do that uh, when you come to come across Lassic, where he's like, hey, come along, join me, and you have oh, to say yeah. no for the game to uh, right, yeah, for the game to proceed. Um, but yeah, yeah, you uh, you say yeah, you'll take the throne. You uh, wave farewell to the rest of your team. And uh, that is pretty much the primary story of Fantasy Star. Um, it's hard because there's things that I want to talk about that come up in later games, but I don't want to give any spoilers. You know. Oh yeah, I yeah. I, wanna... I, I want. Like, we do. I really want to play those even more now. So yeah, maybe I will find a way. It's good. Uh, it's it's good to have played this game and have a lot of the Fantasy Fantasy Star history and lore in your head, especially when playing uh, Fantasy Star 4. Um, because 2 is, you know, ostensibly in the same world uh, and is definitely, like, fo- a follow-up to 1. Uh, 3 was de- developed by an entirely different team because 2 was so, such a hit both in Japan and the U.S. that they got, strangely, the uh, Golden Axe team to uh, develop th- th- uh, 3. And so that's the one that everybody, you know, that's a big fan of uh, Fantasy Star kind of like looks out, looks at a scans and is like, I don't know if that's really canon. And then <laughs> Fantasy Star 4 was, you know, produced by Reiko Kodama and a lot of the original developers came back and that really ties everything up. I think that they knew that, that was going to be the last mainline fan, uh, uh, Fantasy Star game because yeah, before it things, does a yeah, lot I mean, of callbacks to uh, the first game. Yeah, there are more after that, but they went online and just everything got very different. I like those games, but they're just not the same thing. But all, you know, all of the, the four main games are really just still very, um, oh, I'm blanking here on the word. They're still very ambitious. From what I, you know, cause I haven't played them through. I've already said that, but they have like the second game's ending really stands out for a lot of people as pretty wild. That third game has like different generations of characters. Mm-hmm. The fourth one just looks gorgeous. Has these anime cutscenes. As again, just like plot developments that you didn't see in many games at the time. So I like that that much really kept carrying forward through the series after this. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, like the world, world building is so strong in this game, you know, and none of it is none of it. Not none of it is like an incredible like, yeah, they didn't invent anything particularly new in this game. But the way they mix it all together um, I mean, really, really sets it apart from a lot of the games of, uh, you know, of its time. It definitely sets it apart from the uh, other 8-bit RPGs that we got in the United States. Um, Even though, like, in Japan, you know, they got a little... They they got some games that were a little more advanced with Dragon Quest II and Final Fantasy II and uh, the first two uh, Megami Tensei games. Um that were a little more ambitious, you know, considering that Final Fantasy came out on the heels of the first Dragon uh, Dragon Warrior and the first Final Fantasy, um, it's really ambitious. And, yeah, it has, like, a really, like, rich, interesting world that was interesting enough for them to basically carry it it on in the three following games, Um, which is something that's unique and still unique and to this day in... um, RPG franchises, you know, a lot of times, like, you know, Final Fantasy is a per- perfect example. It's like 
every every time you play a new Final Fantasy game, it takes place in its own certain like self-contained world. Yeah, even though all these worlds happen to have chocobos and some of the same uh, elements, uh, <laughs> they are completely discrete from one another. And um, the first four Fantasy Star games, you know, even though they're <clears throat> separated by thousands of years they are very much taking place on the same planets and uh, with a lot of the same elements. Yeah, for sure. And that's like one of the things that makes me curious about like two is, oh, how do they handle, you know, what's, uh, what's Palma like then or whatever. Yeah. And they do some really interesting stuff with that. Just kind of, I don't feel like this is too much of a spoiler, but like the climates of the planets change over the millennia, you know? So yeah. Oh, that's cool. I mean, I, I, and are very like that makes the reasons sense. why are very story specific, but um, it is really cool for that amount, that much attention to detail. You know, rather than being like, "Oh, we've got a template. We're just gonna set the scenario in the same kind of like template that we set before." Um, it's like definitely builds on what what came in before it, but does stuff that would seem like you know really like like. It, get, it gives you a good sense that, like, a lot of time has passed. Oh, uh, one thing I just neglected to mention is uh, one thing you can do in this game is get out of some fights by actually talking to the enemies. If they look sentient, they, like, actually will be, and you can sort of mm-hmm. talk your way out of a fight, which isn't translated in a way that makes sense. They'll just say something that is incomprehensible and the fight stops, but it's a cool idea a little bit of a nod to kind of the tabletop role-playing roots of the whole thing. Yeah, that is really cool. I'm trying to think, can you can you fi- talk with the zombies in this one? Uh, I don't know. I'm pretty sure I you can so. in later games. They're pretty, pretty fine to talk to. Yeah, because I, I was looking at the monster list on the Switch version, and it tells you how you can talk to all the enemies you can talk to. I don't think zombies were on there. I also realized I didn't have... Uh, one of the enemies that I definitely fought on the list because I never actually killed them. I just talked my way out of every fight with the, they're basically Jawas from the desert planet and they're just yeah. rat people and <laughs> ro- they're Jawas straight up. But yeah, I mean, it's funny I, when I was, I mean, I've never been super into uh, star Wars, uh, but uh, you know, even as a kid, I wasn't really into star Wars that much. And so I remember the first time when I looked at the uh, robot cops uh, in quotes, um, as an adult, I'm, I was like, "Oh my god, this is straight lift," and it's still it's still in that era of um, you know ja- Japanese developers being like, "Oh, you know, nobody's gonna nobody's really gonna cha- care if we just steal this or steal this," you know, or you know, you have like Beatles music uh, playing <laughs> in the background in Earthbound, in uh, Earthbound, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty fun. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I wonder. Wonder how much you can get away with these days before Probably Disney starts this, getting litigious. Definitely not this much, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, less than this. So yeah, I mean, uh, I would say that the uh, Switch Sega a- Ages version is definitely the one to play. Um, and this, you know, at this time, it's definitely a cl- classic in my eyes. I mean, you know, I've been had this game in my life for, you know, since 1989. So I have really strong feelings for it, but I do think it's uh, held up really well. Um, though 
I can't imagine going back to it and doing just a straight playthrough without the quality of life uh, improvements that are added uh, in the Sega Ages version. Uh, but all you know, all around, I think we've been talking about that this whole episode about the fact that this is just really ahead of its time in a lot of ways. And um, you know, there's just a couple other things that are interesting that I think are worth, worth mentioning. Um, in uh, Fantasy Star 2, even though that was released for the Genesis, they go, they go for a uh, top-down dungeon instead of a 3D one, uh, as they do here. And uh, they don't have specific backgrounds for uh, during any of the battles, uh, which is all, both of those are kind of interesting because for them to like kind of mm. like take a step backwards with their 16-bit machines, um, even though, you know, the graphics in general were much better. It was interesting to see that this game was a, even ahead of uh, some of its sequel, even ahead of its times compared to like some of its sequels. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I'm sorry. But yeah, I would like to think if like anyone has an interest in like this vintage of RPG, which isn't going to be everyone, but if you are and you haven't played this, like that Switch version is really good. Like I came to this way after it was out, and I was impressed. So that's yeah. Kind of my I mean, big it def- definitely does not feel like you know, like eat your veggie, eat your veggies kind of stuff, um, or you know, sit on my lap, young man, and I'll tell you about the history of video games. <laughs> like, um, there's enough going on there. There's enough like world building. Uh, there's enough charm and interesting story beats, even if they are a bit cliche. Um, and mechanics that I don't know, it still really holds up. It still holds up really well, I think. Yeah, cool. I agree. Well, should we uh, round it out here? Sure. Yeah. I think that's about. Um, think do you have anything basically covered uh, it? that you want to plug, Richard? No, not especially. Uh, I just have my Twitter account where I <laughs> post garbage and am a gay furry and, you know, whatever. I have been, I keep thinking of things I want to do and then I don't. Sometimes I have to get streaming working on my new laptop because nice. I want to stream yeah, something I, the Gungeon. I have this weird streaming box that works about 50% of the time that I try it. Um, but yeah, I'll highly, uh, I'd highly, highly recommend following Robert on, uh, on Twitter. He's a pro, tw- pro Twitter follow. Yes. Uh, and I think pretty much all I have. Mm, thank you. Is, uh, that you can follow me on Twitter at Paul M. Davis. I don't really tweet that much, and most of what I do tweet is uh, me making dumb jokes from sc- screenshots of uh, stuff that I've taken on my Switch. Um, but you can listen to uh, my other uh, podcast, which is a uh, which is Mega Ten Marathon. Uh, it's a game by game journey through the Shin Megami Tensei and Persona games, and you can find that at megatenmarathon.com. And, uh, yeah, if you like the show, that show or this show, please go over to iTunes and review it and uh, let people know. So, yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for listening and thanks for uh, coming on again, Robert. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sure uh, it won't yeah, be long. Yeah, anytime. Before, uh, I'm sure there's plenty back. of other games out there. Cool. All right. Thanks for listening. Yes. I'll think of some. Yes. <laughs>